Today on CityCast Portland, we're rounding up some headlines that caught our attention this week. We'll be looking into the new plan to fund our city parks, uh, the gaining momentum of the Greater Idaho Movement, and the nearly $1 million of federal funding Albina Vision Trust received. Joining me today is Willamette Week's Sophie Peel, who reports on City Hall and neighborhoods, and our very own lead producer, John Natariani. It's Friday, February 24th, 2023. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. Sophie, of course, we invited you because we wanted to talk about your article. Um, Do you want to start us off and uh, tell us what that's all about? Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's it's about sort of the the funding issues in the Parks Bureau and how the city of Portland is trying to kind of connect with a more steady funding stream than it's had in the past. So the Parks Bureau has sort of you know faced a faced a kind of number of devastating cuts um, to its budget and it's just not able to you know maintain and also expand its its park system. Um, so in 2019, there was a really particularly bad cut in it. You know, the Perks Bureau just continues to not have enough money to keep up with its hundreds, if not thousands of assets. So, you know, that means every year Perks assets, whether it be a pool or a roof or a swing, um, are basically going out of commission. And it has at this point almost close to $600 million worth of uh, deferred maintenance, which is kind of an astronomical number. Um, and the Perks Bureau has, you know, for a long time kind of relied on sort of the goodwill of Portland voters to, you know, approve sort of a number of bonds and levies to keep up with maintenance and then, um, or, you know, keep up with deferred maintenance and then also keep programming alive. But those are very finite resources. Um, so what the city of Portland is is asking the legislature to do, and, and they asked Representative Travis Nelson, who's from North Portland and has been, um, you know, he's been a big advocate of, of pools and, and parks programming. They've asked him to take up a bill or craft a bill that would essentially allow the city of Portland to create a municipal parks district. And that's basically a a special district that can levy its own taxes um, and therefore, you know, basically have a have a funding stream, a steady funding stream that it's never really had before. Um, Yeah. Is that usual for uh, cities, that proposal? So it's it's really interesting because Oregon law right now allows for counties to create uh, parks districts. So Tualatin has a parks district, for instance. I think there's a couple in southern Oregon, but it doesn't say anything. It doesn't explicitly say cities can't do this, but it also never explicitly says that cities can do this. And in the bill, there, you know, it's it's sort of between drafts right now, and I think the bill is actually going to end up just targeting the city of Portland. So I actually don't think it's going to include, you know, just put cities in general in the bill, but allow for basically an exception for. Portland to create a parks district. Um, but yeah, Oregon law right now just allows counties to to create those. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I, I, I was looking into sort of special tax districts, which wasn't something I knew a lot about. It looks like a lot of times they're used for like rural fire departments or sort of rural areas that don't have the tax base for some of the services that they need. Um but I, I mean, there is another one, like the Multnomah County Library has something mm-hmm. similar, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and it makes a lot of sense to me because as Portland gets more expensive, like the parks are one of the few truly democratic places in the city for everyone. And the fact that that is the thing that we've been underfunding so for so long. Um, I, I saw some reporting from you from a couple of years ago, Sophie, and uh in 2001, you said, you know, there's this deferred maintenance cost, and it was $100 million less than the number that there is today. Mm, so, yeah. like, I think mm-hmm. that was just maybe like a, a year and a half ago that 
the number was closer to 500 million than it is to 600 million. I mean, yeah. it's it's sort of hemorrhaging. You know, it's just like it's it's really it's kind of catastrophic to see how quickly that number is climbing. Um, and you know, like naturally, the places. I mean, the Parks Bureau has put a lot of. Um, you know, they've really tried to focus their assets on, you know, the parts of Portland that really need those, you know, that infrastructure and that programming, like parts of East Portland and low income communities. But again, it's, you know, it's always going to be, it's always going to be the parks and low income areas that are probably going to be the first. And that's always been an issue, you know, like, you know, parks are an equity issue too. Um, and so I was just going to ask Sophie, do you have any sense of what this would cost for, you know, normal households? I don't. I think I was looking at, I think it was the Tualatin Parks District. And you might want to fact check me on this because I'm scared I'm going to be horrendously wrong on this figure. But I think they have something like 80 cents per $1,000, which I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that seems pretty doable. And I think parks, I will say parks are something that Portland voters have always been really keen on funding. You know, it's been kind of the one place that they haven't really skimped out on. Not necessarily the one place. I mean, we haven't skipped, skimped out on a lot. I think maybe the maybe environment has changed a little bit. And I think people are less tax happy than they used to be, especially in Portland and Multnomah County. But um, yeah, we've always been pretty liberal with parks. And so I think this is something that, you know, and I didn't get a lot of pushback in, in my inbox. I mean, usually when I, you know, write about a bill or when I write about anything, you that know, involves it's, taxing. It's, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Or just anything, just anything at all. <laughs> um, you know, I get a lot of very angry messages in my inbox and I don't think I got one message in my inbox that, of someone who was like, a, you know, I, I'm going to hate this tax district. So, right. It's interesting because a lot of the articles actually coming out of the Willamette are people are leaving because of the taxes. And so it's interesting to get one about like, so, you know, how about we yeah. have more taxes though? But I actually do think that parks are it's what makes Portland, Portland, you know, we have, I don't know, like some of the, I think we're like ranked 11th in the entire United States for having the most green spaces. And it's one of the reasons why I live living here. I don't know. I just can't imagine like not having a beautiful place Mm -hmm. to go to, especially all the things John said, like everything's getting so expensive. And right now, and I actually Googled this because I was like, I feel like everywhere I go, I see a park. And right now, 90% of Portland residents live within a 10-minute walk of a park. This this particular issue, it doesn't just affect like us in the inner area or southeast. It affects everyone. You know, I think what's different about this tax versus maybe preschool for all or, you know, supportive housing services is that I, I think people have been upset that you can't necessarily visually see the effects of those. You know, we're, we're simple creatures in a lot of way. And I think we want to see our, you know, we want to benefit from our tax dollars. Yes. And I think we can we can feel that, you know, more potently when we're walking by a park or, you know, going to go read a book in a park than with some of those other taxes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about the fact that parks are perennially underfunded. And it's like, that's kind of the point, right? Yeah. Like these, they do have revenue streams. They do bring in some money. But the fact that they don't spend more money than they bring in is a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. I mean, and that's ne- I don't think that's ever going to change. Like parks are never going to make the money that they spend. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's just one of those things that like you don't get the return. I mean, you know, returns can look like a lot of things other than money. And I'd argue we do get returns from our parks. But it's not in like, you know, cash form. Yeah, I really feel like that is the reason we pay taxes is for features like parks. 
You know, like, yeah, they don't make money. They're just beautiful. And the reason why we enjoy living here. And isn't it nice <laughs> to like just think of your tax dollars going to something that's really nice, <laughs> like something that is generally just designed to like create yeah. pleasure yeah. for people? I think we're all in agreement. Parks should get funded. But why do I just feel like and maybe maybe it's just me, but I feel like I keep just just throwing taxes and taxes and it's just like this bottomless pit. And I'm just like, but nothing feels like it's going anywhere. So, I, I mean, I totally would. I 100 percent side with someone who's just like, I don't want to I don't want to give any more taxes until I see some you know, results, which yeah. Yeah. it does seem like they just keep popping yeah. up, you know, <laughs> they're like, and now we need school taxes. Like, well, what are you doing with all the money I gave you? <laughs> As a non-homeowner, I say, yes, let's raise the taxes. John, Claudia, thank John. you for your contribution to the parks. <laughs> and I get why, I get why, but there are people who just aren't making a ton of money and still have homes, you know? I think there's a, you know, I, I do, I, I think it's I think you're right that there's an anti-tax sentiment exactly. right now. And, and I think some of it is, I mean, it's a bummer that that's how it's manifesting, but I think some of that concern is, is warranted, you know, not for necessarily the top one or 5%, but sort of that, you know, middle chunk of people like those taxes are no joke. Okay. This is a good place to take a break. Uh, when we come back more headlines with Willamette Week reporter, Sophie Peel. Well, I would like to present the next headline. I think you two probably heard of it. It's pretty big news. Uh, last week, the Idaho House of Representatives passed a non-binding resolution to actually start negotiations with Oregon lawmakers on greater Idaho. For those who don't know what that means, it's, it's a new state that would combine uh, much of eastern Oregon and Idaho. And by much of eastern Oregon, it's basically anything east of the Cascades and it's rural Oregon, Bend would still be part of Oregon. Uh, every time, I don't know, every time I heard about this, it just seems like kind of like a joke to the Portlanders or the, anyone more West. We're just like, good luck. But this is getting serious. Idaho representatives are like, yeah, let's look into this. Um, I don't know. I have a lot more to say, but I'm excited to hear your thoughts. I think I think there's like this, you know, I think we sort of have this like Portland uppityness sometimes that we don't take what happens east of us very seriously. Right. You know, I think that's that's an us problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, again, I think so many of the sentiments that probably East East Oregonians who like would be up for this are, you know, are, are worried about it. I think they're really valid. You know, I mean, I don't think we should make another state, but I think we do have a tendency here of sort of being like, well, our problems are worse than their problems and not really understanding their problems, which are a different set of problems in many ways, you know? Right. Um, you know, I hope it doesn't happen, but I, I think this might be, and, and it's so hard to tell, especially like in this political climate, like what is just for like circus purposes, yeah, yeah. And what actually has some like, you know, meat behind right. it. And I, I don't know. I don't think this has any meat behind it. But well, I've thought that before. Yeah. And then I've been very wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I beg to differ that it's just like, no one's listening to us. I mean, like, I get that. Like, I totally hear what you're saying, Sophia, about like, well, you know, it is an us problem. I mean, Earl Blumenauer, like, what, what was his response? His response was just, he pretty much laughed at it when that happened. He was just like, cool, if we get boys, I mean, if we get Boise in Sun Valley, great. Which, you know, is just like scoff, <laughs> like, pff, sure, you know. Uh, but yeah. yeah, but my concern is more of like, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, it's like, 
white supremacy. I'm gonna just going to go yeah. there. Like, because I was hanging out on that website, greater uh, Idaho website for like an hour. And just, just said, just so you guys know, you should check it out. It is uh, really well done. Eight out of 10. Navigated real nicely. But uh, it was also just kind of a little, everything felt like a dog whistle. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I I think that there is something complicated about that movement that is really troublesome. I mean, you look at some of the things that have been happening in Eastern Oregon, specifically around um, sort of DNR projects and land use projects, right? There have been developments where so mobs of people have showed up with guns. I mean, I think the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge is the most well-known thing, but there's been lots of other instances where kind of secessionist anti-government uh, militias have existed throughout the Pacific Northwest, and they have for a long time. Um, not to say that this is a part of a militia movement, but I think that there is some overlap in that thinking. Um, but, but I also do see the other side of it as like, this is a big state, and that a lot of the policies that are put into place in our state government are driven by like the urban areas. Um, and that a lot of our sort of statewide policy is very focused on the major metropolitan areas. Um, I don't know that seceding from Oregon is a, a viable option. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anybody really thinks that it is. But, you know, it, yeah, there, there are plenty of people in Oregon that are not happy with the way that the state's going. When we had our um, this is like the one moment that stuck out to me in our gubernatorial uh, endorsement interview with Drazen and Tina Kotek. And obviously we endorsed Kotek and I'm a big supporter of Kotek. But um, the one thing that Christine Drazen said in her introduction that kind of stuck with me is she, you know, she grew up in rural Oregon. And, you know, I think she grew up in a trailer park, maybe. And she was saying, like, I'm, you know, I'm running for governor because, like, when rural Oregon does not feel like they are heard by Portland where all the powers rest hmm. and like that's legit that's a hundred percent it's yeah. legit and 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 I think it's so easy to say you know f them they're crazy they're whatever but I think we you know we also have to remember that people saying that about Trump voters well that was 50 percent of the U.S. Mm -hmm. so are we just gonna say y'all are crazy like y'all are a joke to 50% of our, you know, population. Like that's, you know, that's not, it, 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 I don't think it's very productive. Not saying we should give air to this thing or like give it any legitimacy because I do think, you know, it's, it's a secessionist movement. It has, you know, I think it has roots in like, you know, wacky, wack, yeah. you know, right wing, all that bad stuff. Um, and at the same time, like, I, I don't, like, I think we also need to be, uh, not understanding, but like realize that maybe that that more hardcore group of people, like all the other people are only one or two degrees away from that. You know, like it doesn't take much to go from like point A to point B. Gotcha. Because it's more of a financial uh, transition where they're just like, you know, I'm paying taxes. I'm not seeing them in my community. Also, the things that I care about, like between land use and things that actually put food on my table, no one care. No one cares. No one cares in Portland. Yeah. And I get I get it because, again, I hung out on this website for a bit. And what was interesting to me is that they also are trying to sell the idea to Western Oregon. They're just like, imagine if you just got rid of all the poor, because they are, it's the poorest counties. So they're just like, imagine if you just gave that all up and then all your money was concentrated on where you want it to go, because obviously you don't want to give it to us. And I was just reading it and I was like, that's pretty sad. You know, like you can't force someone to love you. But when I was looking at the map, I noticed that the the secession would split warm springs in half which is a reservation mm. and i was just like that's yeah. interesting 
how does the reservation feel about this? And so I, you know, did a fine. I looked and I just want to read you what they said. So basically in the website, they're just like, our ballot initiatives are passing everywhere, basically in the area, you know, that that they're trying, like very, very Eastern Oregon and and then uh, Western Idaho. They're just like, this is where it's happening. We're we're like, basically like, we're winning. This is totally going to happen. And they're just like, well, they didn't, it didn't pass in Orm Springs and Camp Sherman. Um, but I think it's only because they didn't realize that they could stay in Oregon because they could stay, they don't have to come. And basically they're just like, this is the best part right now. Warm Springs gets to stay in Oregon because without Eastern and Southern Oregon counties, Oregon could be a more liberal state that is more giving toward Native Americans. The ballot question didn't explain that these areas could remain in Oregon, though. So I think that's why our ballot measure didn't do well in these two precincts. I'm like, yeah, that's why it didn't do well. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And that's to me, that's when I read that. I'm just like, oh, God. It's like, no, guys, it's getting real. And it's a little weird. And maybe maybe someone should keep an eye on that. I think we've learned our lesson exactly. of, like, thinking things are a exactly. joke and then them, like, really not yeah. being a joke. Yeah, <laughs> And I'm not saying, like, I'm like, oh, Eastern Oregon is insane. Like, it all makes sense. You know, my concerns as a person of color, though, is, like, all the other things that I'm reading into in this website where I'm just like, I don't know, guys. This seems like a little bit more than just political. P- I mean, it's definitely political oh, yeah. power, I mean, it's but- all tied yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, You know, political, like, especially with those, you know, those, like, basically all I mean I don't know they probably wouldn't categorize themselves as all right but they're not far from it like you know you're right those are rooted in white supremacy and like that's and again I think the scariest part of that is like we think of them as as just like tiny little pockets and I think there's a lot of like kind of low-hanging fruit around there that could be like brought into that pocket right thanks for talking that through with me John do you have a headline for us Yeah, uh, I've been looking into what was going on, what's been going on with the sort of development of the expansion at the Rose Quarter, uh, and especially what's been happening with Albina Vision Trust. Uh, This is a group that just got a big grant from the U.S. Department of Transportation. So let me back up to explain what's going on here. There's been this process in place to try and expand the freeway through the Rose Quarter in downtown Portland. It's going to be really, really expensive. And one of the things that ODOT said years ago to get people on board was that they were going to try and use it as an opportunity to reconnect this neighborhood, Lower Albina, that had been a historically black community that ODOT had basically destroyed by building freeways back in the 50s and 60s. They raised a ton of this neighborhood and put freeways through it and really sort of cut out this really central black neighborhood in the city. ODOT says that they're going to try and fix that. And this group, this nonprofit started to try and be like, all right, if this is going to happen, we want to have a role in figuring out how this could go. And the plan came up to actually cap part of this freeway renovation to create new land in that area once again and try and reestablish this neighborhood. Uh, And the group that's working on that just got $800,000 from the government to work on that plan, which is good news. How did it even, like, how did the Albina Trust project even come about? Was it proposed by ODOT? Is that what I'm hearing? Or was it proposed by the community? It was proposed by the community. So 
surprise, surprise, ODOT does not have a good track record of being kind to local communities. They are not good at taking care of local neighborhoods. They're good at building roads, very bad at the sort of community outreach issues that come along with building infrastructure. And, you know, we've seen problems with that all over the city. I think a lot of freeway development has had that problem, um, problems with you know, uh, 82nd Street, which was run by ODOT. Uh, but, you know, once this plan got started the to try and put all this money into redeveloping the freeway, a uh, local group sort of started to be like, we want to have a say in how this is done and what happens to our neighborhood. And it got incorporated as a nonprofit in 2017. Oh, cool. Do you know what exactly um, Albina Vision Trust's plans are with that? nearly a million dollars? Well, it's interesting because the whole point of this grant is to do that planning process, right? They've mm. talked about redevelopment for thousands of new homes, for business incubators, public parks. Um, but you can't just be like, all right, we're going to rebuild this neighborhood and make it happen. There's a lot of work that needs to happen in the meantime. So what this grant was for was is for that planning process, is for them to mm. be able to have the people to work on figuring out what is viable and how they can make that happen once this freeway expansion eventually comes along. And, and I think it's interesting that this grant went to Albina Vision Trust, which is partnered with the city. It didn't go yeah. to ODA. Yeah, yeah. It didn't go to the highway uh, building arm of the state. Yeah. It went to this local community group, which um, I think is a really good sign that as this process sort of limps ahead, it, it you know, there's going to be the right people involved and have funding to be able to make it happen in a good way. Yeah. You know, after I was uh, done scaring myself on the Greater Idaho website, I actually jumped uh, it, onto the architectural firm that's been leading the design of, you know, the new Albina area. And so I was looking at the specs and the site plans. And I don't know if you guys have seen architectural specs and site plans, but they're just like, uh, beautiful. It has people interacting with the space and it's just like, this is how everyone in the community is going to look at it. It's lovely and everyone's going to love it. And pretty much the majority of the people in these specs were black people. And I was, it just got me wondering, like, where are they going to find all these black people? Like, <laughs> where are they moving? Are they going back in time and preventing this, <laughs> the, the, the migration out of Albina? Like, are they planning to go to the numbers and bring back the families like I don't know like I'm ultimately I'm just wondering how this is going to affect actual black Portland families that have been mm -hmm. here since Vanport you know yeah I mean I think that's a valid question and there has been challenges with some of the efforts that have already been happening right like there was some uh, apartment buildings that were built on MLK several years ago and they had you know put in special apartments that uh, they had designated four people who had familial roots in the community to be able to move back into. And because of just bureaucratic incompetency, they had a really slow process of getting people into those houses. So you're right. It's not as easy as just opening the doors and, you know, finding all these people and having them move back in. But I mean, at the same time, like if you think about what homes in this neighborhood are worth now, you know, yeah. like. Any one of these is a million dollar home. I mean, that is so much generational wealth that just just disintegrated, you know, in the name of urban planning. So just to back up a little bit. So it says I'm reading the Oregonians, right? It says the U.S. Department of Transportation gave 800K to the city of Portland for the redevelopment of Lower Albina. Well, so 
uh, Albina Vision Trust is partnered with the city, right. right? So like the city is administering it, and like El- but like Albina Trust is the group that leading is the pro- leading okay. the program. Okay. Yeah, um, I think though, I think with all things that when money flows through the city, you got to keep up. <laughs> yeah, got to make sure it actually goes to where they say it's gonna yeah. go. Going so back, yeah. maybe something to watch. But, but, but you know, I trust the city a lot more than I trust ODOT. You know, well, like the yeah, you know the Portland but, Bureau yeah. of Transportation has. You know, the city basically walked away from this process a couple years ago. You know, mm-hmm. um, the city dropped out because of concerns about how ODOT was going about it, and it was only recently that the city and Obina Vision Trust have come back on to really partner with ODOT on it. Um, and mm-hmm. the director of the Bureau of Transportation has been, you know, take them at their word, but he has been outspoken in, you know, really putting pressure on ODOT to make through that it follows through with its uh, its promises to support this community in addition to just expanding freeways. So Yeah. Not to be a circle back Sally, but um, <laughs> we were just talking about, you know, transparency and in taxes in the city. And I, I guess I, I I get where that hesitation of like, what what's the city doing in there? What are they going to do? <laughs> I mean, like, also, it's just like, oh, let's go to the entity that screwed this up in the first place. They'll know what to do. They'll yeah. help. But I, I understand it's a new day. Uh, and also what's cool about the Albina Trust is that it's predominantly, you know, black led. Like if you look mm-hmm. at everybody yeah. in mm-hmm. it, it's not just like a bunch of white people like, you know, uh, gesturing a land acknowledgement. It's it's actual it's the actual black community. So with that in hand, there should be trust. You know, if things are going to go well. I'm still just like I it's such an amazing idea. But also since we've never seen it in our life, <laughs> aside from that apartment that you were talking about that didn't seem to work out so well. That's what I'm like. Mm-hmm. I understand that, you know, I just don't want it to be a museum of, of a black community, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think it's also worth keeping an eye on the fact that this is tied to this proposed freeway expansion exactly. that is exceptionally expensive and has ballooned in price. You know, originally it was estimated that it was going to cost $400 million. They're now estimating $1.5 billion to put it together. So there are a lot of steps in between that need to fall into place for this to happen. With that in mind, let's get lighter. <laughs> Sophie, your face. Uh, let's go into our lightning round. That's usually when we come up with something something we found in the uh, headlines that we... It sparked whimsy. I do have one, and I it is it does not spark whimsy, and it is not fun, <laughs> and it does not catch anyone's eye. So it's, it's actually... It's dark. Um, so two Oregon cannabis entrepreneurs were found murdered in um, Houston, Texas, one in late January and then the other guy five days later in early February. Um, and in the home with them was, you know, 130 pounds of, of marijuana, 10 pounds of um, hashish or hash oil, um, and then 35K in cash. And they were, you know, pretty brutally murdered by by a, a firearm. And um, they both had... Uh, you know, standing licenses with the OLCC for marijuana. Um, one of them was still more active in the industry and the other one, it's a little unclear what his involvement was in, in the legal market. Um, but, you know, it's really rocked the cannabis industry in Oregon. And I think it was a really stark reminder that until, um, you know, federal legalization happens, there's going to be a parallel black market and the, you know, the black market and the legal market like are never going to be, they're always going to be intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was just kind of another, you know, another push to, you know, pass this thing federally, which of course, I, I don't think it's even five years out. I think slowly the legislature is is sort of changing its mind on it. But um, 
yeah, I think it's a, I think it just really sobered the industry. Yeah. I mean, I think that's interesting to think of in the perspective of some of the stories we saw last year about illegal grow operations in Southern Oregon. Um, And there's a, I mean, there's a really dark underbelly in Southern Oregon of just, I mean, horrific things. And I don't think it's gotten the news coverage that it, it deserves. I mean, it's like a, it's sort I mean, from, from all accounts I've heard, it's like dystopian down there in some of these grows where, you know, they're really exploiting workers. There's, there's a lot of, you know, um, immigrants who will come up and and work for little to nothing and, and completely be exploited by, you know, these, these, um, illegal market growers. And, and it, it, you know, in, in talking to people in the industry too, it sounds like there's a lot of people because there is still, you know, an illicit market. There's a lot of people where being in the legal market right now, it's really tough to make a profit. You know, we thought we thought cannabis was going to be this huge boon. And in many ways it was. And then we've had just like cycles of, you know, cannabis gluts and there being an oversupply and farmers not making any money. And there's a lot of people, it sounds like, who still have kind of one hand in the illicit market and one hand in the legal market. And until we legalize it federally, like that's just, you know, it's always going to be a thing and that's going to introduce danger. So, mm-hmm. um that's my lightning round. <laughs> I feel like you came to my birthday party and then told me someone's dog died. I, I know. I know. I just. <laughs> <laughs> no, these. It's a good analogy. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> take it, Sophie. Take it. Yeah. <laughs> just the party pooper. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, my lightning round is a little different. Um, this this headline is actually from uh, from Wednesday when we had that um, uh, cold snap. And so there were blizzards pretty much all over the United States. And one of them caught, uh, our blazers were stuck in a jet for about eight hours and they had nothing to do and they weren't allowed to leave because it was one of those situations. I'm sure, I'm sure people have been on planes and understand. They're just like, no, 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 no. We're almost, no, 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 we're going to, we're going to. And then so it was that feeling of no, no, anytime now, anytime now. And also, cause they were trying to make a game for the next day. So they were all just like, no, we, we got to stay here. And so they got bored and this is what they came up with. That's Dame. It's. <laughs> I wanted to hear like a, a bunch of the other Blazers doing acapella in the background. <laughs> it was. That's what it was. Well, if you see that. the video clip, it's just pretty much watching the Blazers. Everybody was just hyping up Dame because he was real good. He was just. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. I wonder whose idea that was. Dame's. I want to know like how this originated. <laughs> Dame. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. Dame was like reading the lyrics off his phone. His phone he's like yeah, clearly he, just written he them. Just really? yeah, he just he's wrote like it. The, he's clearly just this. written it, and it's like, all right, let's do this. Oh, so great. <laughs> I'm impressed because I, 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 I have to say I have not listened to a lot of Dame Dalla, but um, I always kind of thought it, it, he maybe was like a somewhat successful rapper because he's Damian Lillard. Mm-hmm. But this might no. He's actually mind. really good at rapping. But you know what? This is the best part is when they interviewed him about it. He was just like, "Well, I, I need a backup plan." <laughs> I'm sorry. Just there's not many people who are just like my backup plan is to be a rapper. You know. <laughs> <laughs> he's one of those annoying really people that's it. like good yeah. at multiple yeah. things. One yeah. of the you best know? basketball players in the world. Yeah. 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 I hate those people. How do you find time to do that? Exactly. And that's what's... <laughs> that, but also, like, naturally, like, people who are naturally talented, like, you know, I have such complicated feelings about And that them. is the reason I loved it. I was like, look at these talented <laughs> yeah. people yeah. 
so bored and they're still bringing joy. And like, also exactly what you said, John, I was like, who has the time? Yeah. Well, that was my uh, headline. Uh, John, do you have one? Yeah. I, <laughs> That's not know, about murder. Uh, it's not about murder. It's not about the blazers, but it is about snow. Um, I mean, obviously, like everybody else, I've been thinking and watching online of all the horrors that people lived through as they were trying to get home from work on Wednesday. Um, and it brings me back to something that has been one of my favorite things this winter, which is the Govy 500. Oh, yeah. So this is, yes. So this is an Instagram page where they document all of the horrible mistakes that people make trying to get up to government camp, to go up to Mount Hood or to Timberline. <laughs> They call it the Govy 500, like the government camp 500, like it's a race. <laughs> and people just upload their own videos of just cars sliding down the mountain and like spinning out and getting stuck and uh, having to put their chains on in inconvenient places. It is like the best mix of like Portland uh, schadenfreude at bad drivers and snark and also like... <laughs> Don't do this. Winter driving is really serious. And don't just drive up a mountain and think that you're going to be okay. It is nonstop <laughs> entertainment. And I definitely recommend the Govy 500 on Instagram. What's the, um, what's the video that resurfaces every time we have a snow day of the two joggers? Yes. yes. <laughs> that, one, that one kills me every time. You know, it's like those Portlanders that love to run and, you know, they're like cute and just hopping along and... Yeah, <laughs> I think we should point out that just in case there's anyone in Portland who hasn't seen that video, we should, link it. We should put it in these... our show notes. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. If no. you haven't seen it, we've got a surprise for you. Yeah, this notes. is like a must see for any Portlander, just so you understand why people hate us. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is our culture. Yeah, this, this video, you don't need anything no, that, else to understand it. Portland You're culture. You're done. <laughs> That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Our lead producer is John Otariani. Our audio producer is Julia Fiaioni. Our newsletter editor is Rachel Monahan, And our host is me, Claudia Meza. Original music by Jenny Conley and Steven Drizos. Additional music by Epidemic Sound. And special thanks to Natalia Aldana for her help on the newsletter this week. We'll be back in a few days with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. <laughs>